Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Picture this, a truck barreling down a highway surrounded by green fields and snow-capped mountains. On its flatbed, a huge metal cylinder. It's a nuclear reactor, small enough to build in a factory and take on the road. This isn't reality in Canada yet, but boosters like Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan tout small modular nuclear reactors, SMRs, as a solution to climate change. We, don't, we have not seen a model where we can get to net zero emissions by 2050 without nuclear. This is a zero emission energy source. Now to call that claim controversial is an understatement. You may have heard how David Suzuki responded to it on Cross Country Checkup a few weeks ago. I want to puke. I want to puke because politicians love to say, oh yeah, we care about this and boy, there's technology just around the corner. My God, we need action now. And that difference of opinion is enough to drive us to dive into the divisive debate around a new generation of nuclear energy. Most SMRs are paper reactors. They don't even exist yet. Given how important the climate story is, I think it's, it's critical that we do take a look. In this episode, we'll hear from those in favor, those opposed, and about what the evidence can tell us, or not, regarding nuclear's role in our climate future. The push to develop small modular reactors has been ramping up in Canada. Alberta, Ontario, Saskatchewan and New Brunswick have committed to work together to support and promote SMRs. Ottawa just gave $20 million to an Oakville company to develop its design. And a detailed federal nuclear action plan is expected soon. But before we get too deep, hey Lisa, tell us what is an SMR? Well, a small modular reactor is a nuclear reactor, so it has radioactive fuel like uranium, but it's on a smaller scale, producing less power than the big plants of the past. And instead of being a mega project built in a place, SMRs would be built in a factory, which is what the modular part means. And the pitch is that that will make them lower cost and easier to deploy, even in remote places like to power mines or off-grid communities to get them off diesel. Those are two places proponents think they could be used in Canada. They're being promoted as the future of nuclear, but so far, these advanced SMRs, only ones in operation in the world, floating in the Russian Arctic. Okay, and yet we know from our inbox that just the idea of developing a lot of smaller reactors and setting them up in these remote places in Canada is generating a lot of discussion. Oh, yes. Uh, and I should say it was actually our listeners that got us looking into this topic even before the recent burst of news. And then a couple of weeks ago, when we asked people to email in about it, there was almost no middle ground. Every email was emphatically for or against. And I have to say, you know, the polarization on this topic has made it really hard to research because at first it seemed like the two different sides weren't just ending up with different opinions on what to do, but like starting from different sets of facts. So, we read a bunch of reports and scientific papers and talked to researchers in the field. 
And what we're going to try and do this episode is make sense of some of those contradictions with what we know and what is still very much uncertain. All right. Looking forward to that, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. That's producer Lisa Johnson. Now, nuclear energy has been a polarizing subject for decades, but there are those who believe it is essential in reaching net zero. And it's not only the energy experts. My name is Chris Kiefer. I'm an emergency physician working out of Toronto, and I have become a nuclear energy supporter in the context of climate change. Now, become is the key word there. Chris is the founder of an advocacy group called Doctors for Nuclear Energy Now, but he wasn't always pro-nuclear. I mean, I grew up in a household that was, you know, environmentalist, that was left of center. And so really, you know, it's a part of the kind of identity. I almost call it sort of like a tribal identity, right? That sharing that worldview and those politics that it's just innate that you will be a little bit anti-nuclear. You know, I grew up in southern Ontario. And when I drive past, you know, the Pickering nuclear station on the 401, I would hold my breath, um, (laughs) which is ironic in retrospect. But Yeah, it was just sort of a part of my upbringing without really researching or looking into it. Uh, So when when did that change, though? So, you know, when I was, um, you know, deep into my doomer phase, um, you know, investigating climate change and getting more and more uh, dispirited, um, you know, I was told, listen, why don't you stop just constantly bringing this up at parties and, and just being such a Debbie Downer and do something about it. And you know, I think she really meant, you know, sort the recycling better and take out the compost. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've ended up becoming a nuclear energy advocate. So, you know, what can I say? Now he says he supports nuclear power because of the research he's done. Once you start to understand the scale of the challenge that lies ahead of us, like we're not talking just about making electricity clean. We need to decarbonize heating, transportation, Um, there's a lot of fossil fuels to replace. But again, in terms of thinking globally and acting locally, I started looking at, well, what does my province of Ontario look like? For you, though, this this seems to have been quite a leap because I have this image that you conjured of of being young and driving past this looming, hulking nuclear plant. And and you actually now want to save the Pickering nuclear plant. It's, It's due to shut down around 2024 or 2025. Why do you think it needs to be refurbished? The reality is we know exactly what's going to happen in 2025 when it comes off the grid. And that is that we are going to be burning natural gas instead. This is a huge step backwards. We managed to get coal off the grid. Coal is just the dirtiest, worst fossil fuel. It's terrible for health, lots of air pollution. Gas is, is cleaner burning and, uh, you know, it's branded as natural gas. It's in the, in, you know, up until the recent past, it's, it's kind of been embraced as a transition fuel even. And I think that, you know, if we value clean air, if we value the climate, if we really think that this is an emergency, we need to refurbish Pickering, keep that going. There's obviously a lot of hype around SMRs and advanced nuclear. We should do that as well. But I think it's a real tragedy to let Pickering go. Um, it wasn't a, a struggle that I that I could really step back from in good conscience. And, and where are you at with it now? How hopeful are you that you're going to get what you want? Well, I mean, you know, Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So those are those are the words that I live by. Um, I'm just wondering what what has motivated you to, to become so outspoken on this? It's not as if you don't have anything to do being both a father and an emergency room doctor. Why take this on? I mean, I've always had an activist spirit in me. Uh, you know, my family raised me to think, you know, more broadly about the world and about my community and how I can make a difference. And again, I mean, it's it's because the stakes are so high with climate change. 
And I, I wish I could believe that wind and solar were the way that we could do this, but they're just not. They're intermittent. They require fossil fuel backup. Um, and so, you know, nuclear energy has emerged as the leading solution for me. And so I feel, you know, especially because no one else will advocate for it, um, that, that I'm, I'm going to take on that role. I've always liked backing an underdog. There are many environmentalists, though, who disagree with him. More than 25 environment and citizens groups put out a statement opposing the new federal investment in SMRs, calling them dirty and dangerous. Among those groups, Greenpeace, the Sierra Club, Equitaire, and the Canadian Environmental Law Association. I'm Carrie Blaze. I'm a staff lawyer at the Canadian Environmental Law Association. We are of the view that small modular reactors or nuclear energy in general um, is a dangerous distraction from real climate action. If, if you look at the UN, the UN has warned that we have 10 years to get climate change un under control. And if we're investing in technology that isn't ready until the 2030s, it misses that 10 year window we have to, to reverse emissions and to decarbonize. The biggest social argument is that nuclear power plants should be part of the mix, that they have a role in reducing carbon emissions. Um, however, the economics don't add up. The cost of renewables continues to go down uh, due to um, incremental manufacturing and installation improvements, while nuclear, despite having had half a century of industrial experience, continues to have costs that are rising. Among the safety concerns we have are that all proposed small nuclear reactor designs for Canada would use some form of enriched fuel. And it's this fuel that typically creates more radioactive waste. So it's longer lived uh, than what we're used to with our can-do fleet of reactors that we have in Ontario and, and New Brunswick. So if we're going to build SMRs in remote rural regions um, for mine sites and Indigenous communities, which is their intended use, it means we're transporting um, more uh, radioactive loads, both on our roads, our railways, um, across the country. And so if we're serious about climate action and the timescale that that requires us to look at, um, we can't ignore the long-lived environmental health um, and nuclear weapons risk that accompanies SMRs um, and the future generational burden that that creates. Carrie Blaze is a staff lawyer with the Canadian Environmental Law Association. So here's where we're at. We've heard that nuclear is too expensive, but SMRs built in factories will be lower cost. And depending on who you ask, they're either absolutely necessary for the climate or a dangerous distraction. We have got producer Lisa Johnson back to try to make sense of what we know and what's still uncertain. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. It doesn't make sense to say we know because we have a data set currently of zero. That's Daniel Kamen, a professor of energy at the University of California, Berkeley, and one of several academics I talked to who work on nuclear policy. The reason why I say that is that all of the new nuclear technologies, the, the suite of small modular nukes, we don't have any deployment experience. And so you can forecast what they might be based on technical assessments, but it's based on no real data. It's based just on what we hope will come out of different plants. What we do have is data from existing nuclear plants, which have proven expensive to build and had escalating costs. There is no economic argument to be made for nuclear power anytime now. MV Ramana focuses on nuclear energy at the University of British Columbia in the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. If you look at the two countries which have had the most experience with nuclear uh, reactor building, namely 
the United States and France. Uh, in both of those countries, studies have shown that costs have gone up, not down. And this is because as you operate more plants, you discover more and more safety problems. So that's the first problem with the idea of factory manufacturing being able to reduce costs. According to the International Energy Agency, cost is a key reason why, as older plants are retired, they haven't been replaced. So that history we know. What's uncertain is how much factory construction of SMRs will actually lower the cost. Can these companies get enough contracts and fulfill them in a timely way so they really can move down the learning curve and take advantage of what has arguably been the huge success of solar? And that is the more you manufacture, the more you learn, the lower the prices get. That's the idea behind going modular. But Kamen says learning could be different in the case of nuclear. You also have to worry about the end of life and the risk issues that are not a feature of wind or solar. And so a bad batch of solar panels um, is actually a learning event, whereas a bad batch of components for a nuclear plant can be catastrophic. Add to that, says Ramana, the challenge of going small. So the problem for small modular reactors is that they're trying to go back in time in some ways. Back to a time when reactors were small in terms of power output. But then, Ramana says, the industry ramped up to the big plant scene today because it made sense cost-wise. It does not take uh, twice as much concrete or you don't need twice as many workers to build a reactor that generates twice as much power. Uh, So when you go back to smaller reactors, you're losing out on those economies of scale. And the hope is that you can try to compensate for that uh, through building in a factory. So that's one thing we don't know. Another is exactly when SMRs will be ready. Most forecasts point to around 2030, leading some to say money and attention should go elsewhere. And frankly, SMRs, they're going to take too long, even if they overcome the economies of scale. You know, we need emissions reductions in the next five to 10 years. Most SMRs are paper reactors. They don't even exist yet. Professor Benjamin Sovacool is director of the Energy Group at the University of Sussex and a lead author for the IPCC on how to reduce emissions between now and 2050. So we don't have time to fiddle with these types of technologies that could, in 10 years, reduce emissions. we got to focus on the now. And the now is things like energy efficiency, wind, solar, hydro, and even things like maybe retrofitting existing nuclear plants and extending some of their lifetimes. Wind and solar are available now and cheaper than what nuclear has cost in the past. Professor Andy Sterling, also at Sussex, says dollar for dollar spent, they'll do more work. It is difficult to find another government that is more favourable towards nuclear power than the British government. And yet in those British government cost estimates, offshore wind is available at less than one third of the cost of nuclear power. So what that means is nuclear power is three times more expensive at substituting carbon emissions. Nuclear power is like fighting world hunger with caviar. It's like using the most expensive option when there are far more plentiful nutritious options available when you account for the costs. So with limited time and money, what do you do? We hear often that we'll need all the low-carbon power we can get. But there are different views on whether nuclear will support renewables as a reliable source of baseload power or get in the way. In fact, it's really quite unreasonable to try to do everything because then you do very expensive things as well as really very cost-effective things and you thereby end up making very inefficient decisions. I'm hopeful 
that our research and development, our innovation budgets are large or flexible enough that we can accommodate both because we just don't know exactly what mix of technologies we're going to need. So there are many uncertainties, including how much nuclear's past really tells us about its future. Uh, there is actually a, a sort of wishful thinking on the part of the nuclear industry to assume that all of these problems that have beset uh, the nuclear reactors constructed so far will magically go away in the case of small motor reactors. I think that's really not going to happen. These new nuclear plants need to perform at a cost level that we have not seen. They need to perform at a reliability level we haven't seen. We need to determine how they play into a world where solar and wind, i.e. the intermittent renewables and storage, already have a clear path. And then finally, most critically, these plants have to be demonstrated to be operated safely during their lifetime and for the fuel management at the end of life cycle. That's a big list of ifs. So I'm rooting for nuclear, but I think that list of challenges is exceedingly long. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. John Gorman is no stranger to that list of challenges. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association now, but he used to be the president and CEO of the Canadian Solar Industries Association. Hello. Hello, Laura. You're quite new to the nuclear sector. In fact, you come to nuclear from the renewable sector. You were previously the president and CEO of the Canadian Solar Industries Association. Why did you make the switch? Well, uh, let me say, first of all, Laura, I, I'm extremely proud of uh, the contribution that I was able to make with so many you know, fantastic people in the renewable energy space over these uh, last couple of decades. And you know, what we've accomplished globally is uh, the creation over these last uh, 20 years of really low-cost solar and, and low-cost wind, which are turning out to be important tools in the fight against climate change. But the, the reality is that uh, 20 years ago, we had 36% clean electricity on the world's electricity grids. And today, 20 years later, after uh, the rollout of uh, renewables, um, we're still at 36% non-emitting electricity on the world's electricity grids. So uh, wind and solar have, have managed to keep us stable and afloat, uh, despite you know growing electricity demand, but clearly, uh, we can't spend another 20 years without making a real dent in, in decarbonizing the world's electricity grids. We need something clean that's going to be a good partner for wind and solar, and that's where nuclear comes in. Okay, so so nuclear comes in there. Um, the SMR roadmap put out two years ago imagines these smaller reactors that would be used in, in off-grid industry locations and in remote communities. I'm wondering what kind of appetite you think there will be for these kinds of nuclear reactors dotted across Canada. The appetite for small modular reactors is going to be enormous, uh, Laura. Um, that's because of the type of economy that we have here in Canada, which can really take advantage of these small modular reactors to help decarbonize their, their operations. 
but also because these small modular reactors are very flexible and they make an excellent partner to intermittent sources of electricity like wind and solar, which means we can actually replace coal and gas-fired electricity as the, the partner for renewables and greatly expand the, the amount of renewables that we're using. Let, let's dig into this a little bit more. The cost of renewables like wind and solar have come down in the last get, decade, while the cost of nuclear has gone up. So isn't there actually a stronger economic case for those kind of renewable energies at this point? Well, firstly, I, I wouldn't say that the cost of nuclear has gone up. Uh, What I would say is that the model of building these very large uh, nuclear power plants uh, is at such a scale that you require state support to build that large a piece of infrastructure. And the promise of small modular reactors is that they are actually produced in manufacturing plants. So uh, by being able to produce these things in a plant, uh, produce multiple units, and ship them out to site rather than making a huge infrastructure project in a particular area far away from a city uh, drastically reduces the cost of these units. But how do you know that? I mean, factory manufacturing, when it hasn't yet been done in the nuclear industry, how do, how do you know that's going to be the case? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, It is fair to say that because these are just being developed and deployed for the first time, we can't be certain about the economics. But what we do know, uh, based on the experience that the Russians and the Chinese have, and now that the United States is determining based on some uh, units they're building in Idaho, is that the projections are turning out to be roughly true. And if we can succeed in rolling out multiple units, and as a planet and as a nation, we we really need multiple units, then we'll be able to improve on those cost efficiencies. Learning as you go, I suppose. Yeah, you know, like any technology, I I have to remind my uh, former colleagues sometimes that, you know, the journey to get cost competitive wind and solar is not something that took place overnight. You know, when I joined the Canadian Solar Industries Association a decade ago, uh, the price of uh, solar panels was, um, you know, almost unattainable. And uh, critics at the time said that it was an expensive science experiment. But you really need to get that sort of um, volume approach in place, and you need policies that are going to encourage the adoption of clean energy technologies. And when you do that and you get enough penetration, then you really can deliver on those cost efficiencies. And we're going to do exactly the same thing with small modular reactors. I have to put this to you, though. I mean, there is a bit of a learning process involved in this. But when it comes to nuclear manufacturing, there's a lot at stake. We, We talked to one researcher who said in solar, a bad batch um, is, is a learning experience, but in nuclear, it could be a catastrophe. And I wonder what you say to that. The long legacy of misinformation and stigma around conventional nuclear has really uh, been unfortunate. Um, it, it has been something that has plagued the industry, but um, when people look into the real facts behind nuclear, they come to the realization that nuclear is actually one of the safest forms of electricity generation on Earth. And it's not something, Laura, that you know the listeners have to take from me. Uh, it's something that people need to do 
the homework on if they are concerned about climate change and if they are determined to you know, help make a difference in terms of decarbonizing our electricity systems and, and the other things that are hard to decarbonize. And by that I mean you know, go to the World Health Organization, uh, go to the United Nations studies and look at the real facts behind the safety of nuclear. And I think what people are going to find is that when you look at all forms of electricity generation, it's, it's, it's right there at the very top in terms of safest. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to put that out there. But the, uh, the small modular reactors, this next generation of, um, of uh, nuclear, um, these the smaller sort of distributed uh, plants have enhanced safety features to them. Um, and uh, that go even beyond the, the sort of track record that we, that we do have in nuclear. So it's very promising. And, I mean, I, I fully understand um, some of the concerns that people have. When I moved over from the renewable side, I had to do a lot of homework to really look into the technology, its track record, uh, the way that it deals with some of the issues that are of most concern to people. And, um, you know, clearly I've, I've come to uh, the realization after all of that that really there is no way to net zero um, without nuclear. And secondly, it just is a really safe, uh, remarkable technology. Now, yeah, you talked about the enhanced safety measures for the SMRs, but there still aren't any actual approved designs in Canada yet. So what do we know about the safety measures? Well, uh, we actually know what the safety measures are very well. Um, we have 12 technologies that are in front of the Canadian regulator right now in different stages of uh, review and licensing. Um, that review process not only looks at the, 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 the safety, uh, inherent safety features of each of the different technologies, but it looks at a whole series of other things, which is, you know, why it takes time, and it, it should take time, you know, to clear through, through these areas. I just want to keep on this safety issue just for uh, one more question here. That One of the lessons... That, that nuclear power's history has taught us, and it does hang over what you do now, is that as you build uh, as you build more plants, you discovered more situations to safeguard against. And I'm wondering how confident are you that SMRs won't face that same kind of situation? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we have 60 years' experience uh, here in North America in terms of working with nuclear technologies of all kinds, whether... Um, you know, they're in icebreakers or submarines, uh, laboratories, or actually operating uh, these plants, right? And Canada is a respected uh, global leader in terms of the, the safe operation and management of these plants. There's never been a single person uh, harmed by uh, the operation or spent uh, fuel associated uh, with this. And our regulator is uh, really world class. So, the regulator is taking all of that experience and applying it to these new technologies that are coming on board. So uh, the confidence and familiarity is very high. Well, you did anticipate my next question, which is about the matter of waste. Nuclear waste in Canada is currently being stored, but where it will eventually mm-hmm. go in some deep repository, that's still unresolved. Um, and is it responsible to actually be creating more radioactive waste without knowing where it's going to end up? Right. Well, um, let me let me start again, Laura, just by saying, firstly, uh, the nuclear industry globally uh, and here at Canada does uh, a, f- a phenomenal job of the safe management and treatment of, of its waste products. And when I said that nobody has ever been harmed uh, by spent fuel, I think that's a pretty definitive statement, right? Um, 
pretty remarkable. So we have to remember that all sources of electricity create waste. And some not only create waste, but they emit uh, pollution, right? And... Um, but I think people nuclear, might think that radioactive waste is, is waste of a, of a different order. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. So let's, so let's get to that. Um, but, but just keeping on this stream here for a second, because every source of energy does create waste, we are the only industry and the only form of electricity generation that actually accounts for every aspect of the byproduct, the waste that it produces. And it prepays for the safe and responsible treatment of that stuff, right? So that's my first point. But the, th the other thing that's really important to remember here is that uh, we produce so little waste. And I think that's important here when we're talking about the question of how we're going to uh, have a permanent solution for um, the spent fuel that we produce. Uh, uranium is a million times more energy dense than, let's say, coal, for example, a million times more energy dense. So what that means is that the amount of waste that we've produced, and if you want to take um, Ontario, for example, for the last 60 years, we've been getting two-thirds of our electricity, clean electricity in Ontario from nuclear, and the amount of spent fuel that we've actually produced could be uh, stored you know, up to the, the, uh, the sideboards in a handful of, of rinks right now. Okay, so... 60 years, two-thirds of our largest province's electricity, a very small amount of waste produced, and it's been being stored very safely. Um, now, when it comes to the, the uh, ongoing refurbishments, you know, we're going to have nuclear in Ontario, for example, for another you know, 50 years. So it's important that we have a permanent waste uh, disposal aspect to this. And what you're referring to, Laura, is this deep ge de geological repository. They're down to two sites right now that they're selecting. And this is uh, the idea that um, we are creating a, a ge geological repository that uses both you know, physical and um, engineered barriers to store the nuclear waste permanently. Um, it's an approach that is being used in uh, other places around the world. And Canada has a vast experience in terms of, you know, dealing with these sort of um, geological repositories from the other um, sectors we have. So it's going to be a good solution. But I, I also want to point out whenever this topic comes up, um, the technologies that we're introducing right now, a number of these small modular reactor technologies, actually use the spent fuel from CANDU reactors as their fuel. So the existing... Uh, spent fuel is going to be uh, reused in the production of electricity. So, so while, while it's essential that we continue to um, ensure that we've got a permanent repository for spent fuel, I, I, I also you know, like to point out the fact that there are uses for the spent fuel which, which are important and um, are going to be able to add to the uh, cost effectiveness of future technologies like these SMRs. I appreciate all that you said, but I'm not sure that you actually answered my question about whether it's responsible to create more radioactive waste when we're not sure where it is going to end up. Well, as I, as I said, Laura, I mean, we've been producing a, a very small amount of waste uh, for about 60 years, uh, storing it very safely, and no one has ever been harmed by it. And, um, you know, it is a long process to get through uh, the community consultations, the final site selection, the engineering, and the construction of this deep geological reserve. Uh, but it is underway. Um, we have, uh, through the, the 
NWMO, um, Waste Management Organization, um, have uh, narrowed it down to two sites, and the every expectation is that this will be operational by 2040. There's a, there is one other aspect of this, and that is if if we if you are locating SMRs in remote communities or mining operations, I'm just wondering about what that means in terms of transporting radioactive waste long distances. Mm. Well, I think there's two aspects to that. One is um, we. We already have a, a very sophisticated uh, network in place for the transportation of um, uranium and, and spent fuel, uh, etc. Uh, but one of the advantages of these small modular reactors is that uh, many, if not all of them, are actually fueled uh, in the manufacturing plant itself. And they don't have to be ref refueled uh, for uh, 10 years in, in many cases, and, and some even more. So... Unlike the existing uh, can-do technology where you're, it's a sort of constant fueling uh, process and you're bringing in and then storing fuels on an ongoing basis, these contained ones um, are fueled up once and then probably brought back to the manufacturing facility to refuel. Or if it's a different technology, then the refueling happens um, the same way that we're used to doing things, but it would be done on a, a much less frequent basis. Um, the Canadian Environmental Law Association is concerned that those smaller projects, nuclear reactors producing less than 200 megawatts, don't trigger an impact assessment under Canada's new Impact Assessment Act because um, because they are smaller, so they don't get that pro the usual environmental assessment. What effect does that have, though, on the per public perception of SMRs if they can move forward without the public input that comes through an assessment? Well, I, you know, it, it comes down to confidence in our uh, in our our regulator. And uh, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission uh, is uh, recognized as a, a global leader in terms of, you know, this, the safe uh, regulation of, of nuclear. And, you know, it's, it's for that reason and, and on the merit of the way that we've been able to treat, you know, 60 years of uh, nuclear power in Canada without incident that uh, there's that degree of confidence with these uh, smaller projects that they're going to be regulated properly. Yeah, I guess so. I guess it just comes down to that. What we were talking about before with the public buy-in, though, it's an opportunity to for the industry to sort of build a, a dialogue with people in the communities that they're trying to move into. It is an opportunity to do that, and you know we're already uh, through the this SMR roadmap that was quite an extensive consultation. You know we've identified communities and regions of Canada that are more or less uh, accepting to nuclear. Um, one of the things, and to give you an example, the mining uh, industry uh, is is really um, desperate for uh, small modular reactors to integrate into their operations. They have done studies uh, with us that show that even the first of a kind small modular reactors that we're producing are going to save them 50% of their uh, energy uh, costs. Um, and it's going to do it cleanly, and, and so bringing down those CO2 emissions. And we also know that in communities outside of things like mining and oil and gas, where, you know, real people communities, we know that um, people's comfort level with nuclear has a lot to do with how much they know about nuclear. So the, the folks that are actually in nuclear communities, you know, Darlington, Bruce, etc., uh, Point La Pro in New Brunswick, they, you know, they're very, very high level of uh, uh, of acceptance and support for for nuclear. Um, but when we speak to uh, First Nations communities, for example, there's going to be a very uh, long um, 
long exploration process, uh, one that uh, you know there is going to uh, have uh, these communities insist on um, understanding all about it and what their interaction is with it, and some communities will want it and some won't. I can guarantee that there's not going to be a community that, that does not want a small modular reactor in their backyard that is, is going to have one forced in there. It's, it's really got to be about consensus and buy-in. So we, re we recognize it's, it's not for every community, but we're encouraged by the fact that four provinces and many sectors really view small modular reactors as a needed solution to, to address uh, climate change. So uh, we've heard that SMRs are, have been called, this is a quotation, paper reactors, and the concern is that they'll take too long to deploy given the urgency of climate change. What's your response to that? My response to that is, is an appeal uh, to, to people <laughs> to recognize that the challenge we have in front of us is so great that it is going to take every single solution, clean energy solution, that we can bring to the table to confront this challenge. And it's an existential threat, right? So the idea, imagine if, you know, these same people who are saying that, you know, seven or ten years is too long to bring small modular reactors to the table. Imagine if I or the people that I've been working with for the last 20 years took that attitude about developing and deploying wind and solar to become the, the low-cost tools that we need right now and are serving a valuable purpose, right? But we can't go into a future depending solely on what we have on the table right now. And I'm speaking from personal experience here when I talk about the need to accompany wind and solar in particular with something that firms it up. And, and right now, you know, when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining, and right now that solution all over the world is uh, either coal-fired generation or gas-fired generation. And it's the reason we haven't made a dent in decarbonizing electricity over the last 20 years despite uh, this fantastic low-cost wind and solar, right? So we need a replacement uh, for those things. Small modular reactors are clean, they're responsive, they're safe, they expand the ability of wind and solar to actually do the job that they should do. And seven years uh, to get these things, you know, starting to be integrated into the system is not a long time. It's a blink of an eye in terms of, you know, energy planning, but it is a real necessary tool uh, that we're going to need if we're going to hit our targets and, and keep global warming, you know, below 1.5 degrees. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Laura. John Gorman is the president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association, and we have an extended interview with John on our podcast or on demand at CBC Listen. That does it for us this week. And if you haven't subscribed to our podcast, please do. And if you can give us a review, the team would really appreciate it. The team, of course, is associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel, and technician Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch, and we are back next week.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.